Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Today's episode is our second of two episodes on Michael Shea's The Autopsy, published in 1984. As we said before, you know, in the last episode, this is a novella, so you're getting a two-part episode. And as I just said, this is our discussion of it. Uh, this story and these episodes were... Um, nominated by a Patreon supporter. So thank you so much. This is kind of how the whole show runs now, and it means a great deal to us. And we've had pretty much nothing but great stories so far this year, which I'm extremely grateful for. And I, I can't wait to dig into the autopsy here. Yeah, me too. This story is fantastic, and I'm I'm so grateful that it was nominated, so grateful then that our other Patreon supporters voted for it. As we said last time, we hadn't done any Michael Shea on the show before, and I've actually never read any Michael Shea at all, despite the fact that he's someone whose work I ought to have read a ton of. And uh, hopefully this will just be the, the beginning here for us covering Michael Shea on the show. Yeah, I had a great time last time, Brandon, on the the recap. I think we hit on some really juicy topics uh, for the discussion here. So uh, I just wonder where you want to start. Yeah, yeah. Last episode, I mentioned that we'd be looking at really how this story functions generically and whether the quote unquote blended genres do work well together. And I also want to look closely at the monster of the piece. That also means examining the character of Dr. Winters as he's kind of the the final girl, so to speak. You know, his actions defeat the monster. Um, you know, and suffice it to say, there's an awful lot going on with both the alien and Dr. Winters. Uh, and we'll save, I guess, looking at those characters closely and talk about the story in a more abstract sense first. So that's where I want to start. But finally, the last thing we'll do today is um, I'm going to ask you, Glenn, some questions about the recent adaptation of this story that was released on Netflix as part of Guillermo del Toro's horror anthology production called Cabinet of Curiosities. So let's get going with genre and tropes. I guess when I talk about genre for this story... I'm really interested in what kind of tropes we see being used within the horror and weird genre, you know, which is a given. So really, maybe we're looking less at the blanket genres and more at the tropes um, that speak to what genre this might store what genre this story might be a part of. Uh, still though, you know, Shay picks up and puts down tropes from many genres in order to construct this story. So I wonder, Glenn, what tropes in this story that you saw kind of pointed to bigger blanket genres being used, or at least kind of got our heads in that space to create expectations? Well, I think as we said in the recap episode, I mean, the story begins with this hard-boiled vibe. It begins like this is going to be a hard-boiled detective case where our detective, possibly an iconic detective who has already had some stories written about him, is going to have more in the future, is this medical examiner. And Shea plays with those tropes, or leans on that trope, maybe I should say, for you know about a third of the story. Yeah, that's what it feels like. And then switches gears to telling us a serial killer story, still without any necessary like supernatural fiction or weird fiction element to it, but nonetheless a, a horror element to it, right? A serial killer horror element, or maybe we might call that a thriller, I suppose. And then in this final act, then it's pretty clear to us 
really right away, I think, that we are dealing with a body snatcher story. And so I really love the way that Shay has you know three clear acts to this story, and each of them feels like it's in a different genre. But the bridges between the transitions or the cadenzas between those acts are almost seamless. So you just move from one type of story to the next without really noticing that you're doing that. And I think it's it's brilliantly done and then does therefore do, I think what you're suggesting, Brandon, become kind of a commentary on these different tropes or these different genres. Yeah. And how, how they can be blended together as well. I mean, he's even working with stuff like that you get in subgenre things in horror, like subgenre categories. There's body horror, there's cosmic horror. We have, you know, uh, the body snatcher stuff, which is a horror story, but this has also got some science fiction elements that you might get in an alien invasion story. There's hints of the demonic possession story as well, but I, I think you pretty much captured it. I made a little list. I have the, uh, the procedural from the medical examiner's point of view, the thriller, which you mentioned, the alien invasion story, you know, demonic possession, body horror, and cosmic horror. That's just my itemized list. I think we got them all um, for people who are keeping score at home. But it's really astonishing what he's been able to do here. You mentioned The X-Files in the recap episode, and I think that show is a pretty good example of what Shay does here in the story, even though the autopsy is a precursor to The X-Files. So what I want to do now, Glenn, is each each of us will pick like one trope that Shay uses in the story and kind of think about how they function within the story. I want to pick procedural Glenn. So uh, <laughs> you can pick a trope and, and see how uh, it, it kind of works throughout the story. Um, so we can maybe take the story apart a little bit to see how this all works together. Well, I think for me, probably, you know, if I were going to describe this story to someone, which I guess we did, that's what the recap episode is, <laughs> uh, I guess I would lean pretty heavily on framing this as ultimately a body snatcher story, even where the demonic possession comes in is really the alien, well, talking quite a bit to intimidate Dr. Winters, but also explaining the long relationship that his space alien species has with humans here on Earth, that they've been coming here for a long time and possessing people, and that our stories of demonic possession are really stories of this, or at least many of them are. The factual basis for stories like that are really these alien body snatcher stories, which I think is brilliant. This alien also indicates that hosts that they have been in have been important people, and that it's actually been the aliens making very important decisions as heads of state and heads of religious movements and so on, which... I don't know if that all screams kind of a, a spinoff, I guess. I would love a kind of uh, Middle Ages version of, of this story. I would definitely <laughs> read that. So yeah, anyway, I guess Body Snatcher is the trope that I would pick to really frame this story on. I think that's a great choice, and I was kind of hoping you'd pick that, because the alien invasion stuff feels like a curveball, but the way that Shay sets it up and then kind of leans into body horror to kind of wrap it up, I think works really well. We'll talk more about how these blended tropes work together in a moment, but let me just talk a little bit about the procedural stuff. I mean, this is kind of the, um, the I don't know, format du jour of television uh, maybe du jour is the wrong word. That means of the day. It might not be as popular in our day, though the format 
really suits itself for TV, for a five-act TV show, you know, where you have 12-minute blocks of programming and then you have uh, commercials in between them. Um, so I think we're all really familiar with the rhythm of this kind of storytelling that focuses on the actual procedure of police work or medical examiner work. And those are usually the two favorite types of people to uh, have as main characters in a procedural show. So yeah, this, this type of storytelling um, has been a pretty big deal since the seventies, I think. And Shay is picking up on that and doing something really interesting with the rhythm of the storytelling. How does exposition work in a procedural? What are viewers or readers interested in and how do you tweak the genre of the storytelling you know, let's say you have a medical examiner as a main character who's going to investigate a body and determine that the detectives need to get to work and solve the crime and have it not be horror, you know, which is a lot of shows. Well, Shay's maybe not so interested in that. So he says, we're going to go into the procedure of the medical examiner's work. We're going to be in their mindset as they're cutting open the body. What kind of mind, what kind of person is able to do this kind of work day in and day out? And so I think that that what Shay is doing here so well is tweaking all of these really popular modes of storytelling in order to tip the scale into real horror. And it's 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 kind of amazing. Um, but I do wonder, Glenn, as I kind of move into this next question here, how you felt the blending of all these tropes works together in the story. In other words, does the introduction of these new tropes and all the baggage that comes with them, did it for you strengthen kind of the cement of the story to hold it together or, or weaken it? Did you feel like all of these things coming at you created a, a, a really coherent style of storytelling, or do you feel like there were any, I don't know, weaknesses in the in the wall, so to speak, in the mortar? This is a great question because I think one of the ways that we have to approach thinking about the story and the the tropes here that serve as the the glue, really, for for the story and move us through these different phases of the story, something that I don't think that we can talk about that without also talking about the narrative choices that Shay has made. And in particular, to give us a story in which we're just deep in the point of view of this doctor. He's really the, the only point of view character that we have, and that we're coming into the story when the crimes have all been committed, right? And so the backstory is exactly that. It's backstory that we then have to get through the voice of another character that really serves as a, you know a big part of the of the story half of the first act is actually just the sheriff telling the main character and therefore also the audience what's going on that is a narrative choice right to do it that way rather than to narrate that directly from you know the, the narrator of the story to actually give us that information to also give us the story in chronological order rather than to make all of that a flashback that we're getting in conversation or getting in dialogue and so when we're thinking about the tropes holding the story together, I think we also have to think about the order in the story itself and the the structure of the, the story. And I think for me, what Shea has done here does work pretty flawlessly. There might be you know a couple choices that I might have made differently, but I do think that the way that he deploys these tropes, uh, almost kind of overlapping, right? He starts to introduce one at the same time that he's fading out the other. So 
it seems pretty smooth, pretty seamless as we transition from one to the other. I think that all works really well. And I guess what I'm getting at here, Brandon, is that for me, the one narrative weakness in this story is that the backstory came in this this dialogue, this conversation. Though, as you said in the recap episode, it's a really great scene between these two friends. But for me, that was the one part of the story where I felt like I could see the outline of the story and was kind of sucked out of it. I see. That was my favorite part of the story because I love uh, people sharing things. It's kind of like a short... I thought just thought it was handled so well. But I do agree with you. You can see the bones of the story in that bit of conversation because you know she's thinking okay, how am I going to get all this exposition across? <laughs> it has to come up with a way. I always, I mean, you, me, every single writer wonders how, they, how they're going to explain what the story is they're trying to tell without letting the reader know they're trying to explain it. Exposition is a problem, I think, for, for every writer, and there's never a good way to do exposition. Um, but it can be hidden well, and I think Shay did a pretty good job here. And apart from that, you know, which I think I, I agree with you, even though I loved that scene. Um, I also think that this was done flawlessly. You know, I don't know if I've come across, and I wonder if you have, Glenn, if you've come across uh, procedural with weird fiction elements that kind of fully satisfies the expectation set by both genres in as well as this story does. You know, we get a fully fleshed out medical examiner as detective story here with a conclusion to the mystery that the Emmy had a hand in solving. And then we also have layered on top of it and throughout a weird fiction story where the investigator or the person who comes across the weird element uh, seems to go completely mad at the end of the story. And I, I'm not sure that I've as I've said, read anyone else who's pulled this off. I mean, the instinct also to create an investigator in a weird fiction story um, or a detective character, iconic detective characters you've mentioned, only to kill them off is an instinct you almost never come across in a writer. I think I've seen something like this actually only play out in one other horror story, uh, which is a film called Fallen starring Denzel Washington that I haven't seen in ages, but... Reading this story made me want to rewatch that movie. But I wonder if you've come across any other story where the disparate genre elements are fully satisfied, even though they kind of, I don't know, the X-Files made them normal, but this wouldn't have been a normal blending of genres, I don't feel, uh, um, you know, until we get into the mid-90s or so. No, you're absolutely right. And I can't think of one that is better than this. I haven't seen Fallen, although you've just sold me on it. So that might be what Elizabeth and I watch <laughs> for the next week now that we're done watching the adaptation of uh, of this story, which we'll get to here in the episode in a little bit. But I want to actually back us up uh, a bit here, Brandon, just to think about the history of this type of, of story, what we might call the mystery medical drama, I guess. Uh, you brought this up as being, you know, de jour on TV and then corrected yourself, which I think was right. It's not du jour anymore, but we're old enough now to think that du jour means 20 years ago or even possibly <laughs> 40 years ago. But you're right that this was a massive thing in the 1970s and the 1980s. I mean, medical dramas as a much bigger, much broader umbrella 
category are you know still huge on TV. We've all seen probably way more episodes of them, just generally speaking, than anyone actually should and can name probably a dozen of them off the top of our head. I mean, for some of us, maybe the first thing we think of is Doogie Howser. Maybe it's ER. Maybe it's something that's on the air now. Not that I know what any of that is, but there's a ton of it, right? And I think that Michael Shea has exactly this sort of thing in mind as he's writing this story. And specifically, I'm thinking of the TV show uh, Quincy M.E., M.E. as in Medical Examiner, that ran from 1976 to 1983. Um, And I don't know, maybe even Michael Shea watched the the finale of that on May 11th and just said, oh, man, I I need to write a story like this, and then sold it the next year in 1984, right? Which also, I think, is the exact year that Murder, She Wrote shows up, though She's not a medical examiner there, but in the second season of that show, and I think from that point on, uh, a doctor who does some medical examining is an important part of the you know the mystery solving element there. And so this was a huge part of pop culture, you know, at the time that Shay was writing this story. I have seen some of Quincy Emmy. I mean, it predates my time, right? It's before my time, but I've seen some of it. And as far as I know, none of it has this weird fiction element, right? So that's one of the things I think that Shay is doing here kind of immediately is saying, I want to write a Quincy M.E. story, except that it's cosmic horror, it's weird fiction, and uh, and blend all of those elements in. And I think he's just doing that you know, absolutely masterfully, as we've said. The other thing I want to say, Brandon, just about the history of genre, actually going back to Murder, She Wrote here, which is that that move that Murder, She Wrote makes in its second season is the classic way to actually have medical examination and doctors in these mystery stories, which is to make them assistance to the detective. And this is classic. This is Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes, right? Who, of course, we actually are getting to talk about on, on Patreon uh, very shortly, which I'm quite excited about. But this is also even what we see in the Seabury Quinn stories, uh, at least the one that we've done so far. We're going to get to do another one of those this year, so we'll we'll check on that. And just in general, seems to be a real standard format real standard formula. That's the way that you get medical characters, medical examiners, doctors into mystery stories, whether or not, you know, they're going to have cosmic horror or other type of weird fiction <laughs> elements right. to them is to make them the assistant to the detective. So they think that's another big move that Shay is making here is saying, no, I'm just going to have the doctor be, you know, the main focus here. And if anyone's an assistant uh, in some way, it's the sheriff here. It's it's such a great kind of inversion. I was thinking of Quincy Emmy as well, and and as you were describing, uh, you know, all of these shows out there, I was like, this is Quincy Emmy meets Kojak. You know, this is <laughs> this is kind of like caught up in seventies uh, and early eighties TV. Um, you know, and kind of blending these two iconic characters, and yeah, it's an it's an amazing bit of work that Shay is doing here. This kind of synthesis of this storytelling, of course, the you know, I use the word investigator instead of detective to kind of harken back to the classic role of the investigator in like Lovecraft's weird fiction as well. And so, yeah, I think that this was all just on the table and someone just needed to pick them up together and say, I can do this. I can, I can blend these things and it's going to be great. Uh, and, and I think he did a great job. And, and so I, I want to move on from this kind of trope and genre examination and look at the protagonist and antagonist of the story. Now I want to start by looking at Dr. Winters and his goals and motivations um, and his character arc, because I think this story either sinks or swims based on our, 
attachment to Dr. Winters or maybe our believability or our belief in his the, the psychological reality of his thought life. Uh, so, Glenn, I'll just ask you here. What do you see as the core motivations for Dr. Winter's actions in the story prior to this discovery of the alien and then after it? Yeah, this is a big change, right? This is a real dramatic moment in this story when Winters realizes what's, you know, what he's up to and the whole plot of the story changes. Because the beginning of this story, the plot is that Dr. Winters has been sent here to examine these bodies to fill out an official county medical examiner's report that finds in favor of the insurance company who essentially has bribed the boss of Dr. Winters, right? That's that's the plot. And Dr. Winters is struggling with the ethics of this and his own moral position on this, aided and uh, abetted by the fact that he knows he's going to die. And so we get in his internal thinking, his decision to not follow orders. Uh, you know, if he finds a bomb, you know, maybe he'll he'll say that he found the bomb, but he's not going to manufacture evidence and he's not even going to manufacture suspicion such that the bodies would then have to be removed and be autopsied somewhere else where the insurance company could uh, could essentially even just edit the the reports such that they you know, find in favor of the insurance company. Dr. Winters decides he's not going to do that because it doesn't matter to him if he gets fired or not. He's not going to be making mortgage payments for much longer. He's not going to need to buy groceries for much longer. He's going to die. And so he is going to follow his conscience here, right? This His impending death, knowing that he's going to die, gives him this freedom to follow his conscience. That's really the plot of the story from his perspective, right? At the beginning of it. But then we have this dramatic change where now there's a much bigger threat. This isn't just about uh, justice. This isn't just about class war of employees against the management and the mine company, uh, and then also throwing the insurance company in the mix and the insurance company having bought politicians and so on. That's secondary concern now once Dr. Winters realizes that there is a cannibalistic body snatching alien who is serial killing people in this town <laughs> and uh, wants to continue doing that. And he needs to put a stop to that. He needs to save everyone in the town by taking out this monster. I mean, that's a real dramatic shift in these in these plots here. And I just love it. But it also shows us, I think, the two different modes in which Dr. Winters is a hero. He is willing to sacrifice his own body, what's left of his life at the end of the story, in order to save everyone. But even before that, I think his actions are are heroic, where he is willing to take on the corruption in this in this county to ensure justice for the family members of these people who have died at work. I think you did a really great job and and got me to consider something I hadn't considered, which is the way that the cancer, uh, Dr. Winter's cancer plays a role in the first part of the story. I'm not not sure I would describe um, using cancer as a motivation to do the right thing 
strictly speaking heroic, but it's a start. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. It's Dr. Winters is interested in doing the right thing, but I want to look at the way that cancer plays a role in this story here because I'm not sure that I'm sold on having cancer as a plot point in this story. It's actually my one and only quibble with the story. Yours may have been the, the, the way the exposition was handled. Mine is the presence of cancer here. I would have asked, you know, Michael Shea to excise this bit of the story. And I don't think much would have been lost because I would have said, hey, uh, you built this really strong relationship between Dr. Winters and Sheriff Craven, and it's sufficiently strong to motivate Dr. Winters to want to sacrifice himself to save his friend, uh, which is which is how I read kind of the motivation at the final act, even though... Uh, even though Dr. Winters wants to save kind of this whole town as well. And then the way the cancer is handled at the end really only serves kind of as an added insult to the injury that the alien is about to face. I do think you did a great defense of having cancer as motivating Dr. Winters in the first part of the story. But my question is though, like, do we need it here? Um, I wonder if you feel you know, differently, Glenn. Did you feel the cancer really worked in the story? Does it strengthen Dr. Winter's final sacrifice? Did it make his actions stronger or weaker, you know, in terms of motivation than they would have been without it? In other words, like, how does this play into Dr. Winter's motivation? And would you, do you see the story working without it and maybe even being stronger in a sense without it? Well, I think that you're right to point out that it's less heroic to make these types of sacrifices when you know you're going to die anyway. I mean, that's absolutely true. And I think that what that suggests is that what Shea is interested in here is painting Dr. Winters as really a type of everyman character who, in the first instance, wouldn't want to lose his job if he still was needing to provide for a family and so on. But you know, since he's not going to have those responsibilities soon, that he is free to act on his conscience. And so I think that that is a commentary that Michael Shea is making on our society, or at least, you know, on the society of 40 years ago at any rate, that I think is actually a big theme of this story, this uh, uh, class struggle and economic justice here. But then in the second instance, right, the second half of the story, I think that he's using the cancer as a way of showing us that Dr. Winters is able to rationally say that he knows that his own survival is simply irrelevant at this point, and that that gives him also the freedom then to make choices that are actually going to be effective, that are actually going to work. And the idea being here that if he had been trying to not just kill the alien, but also get himself out of this situation to survive this encounter, he would have failed. And so, yeah, again, I think that that's Shay wanting to actually show the way that... Uh, so again, I think that that's Shay wanting to show us the way that our impulses to want well, to survive our own, just physically at all, but also to make sure that we aren't suffering as a result of our actions can get in the way of our of our heroism. So I think there's a bit of a commentary there on on what what heroism is, what it looks like, what are the factors that uh, can get in the way of us acting in the way that we think you know that we believe is morally correct, and so on. So um, yeah, for me, I think that was actually a big feature of the the story. I 
you know, to, to get back to your question of, you know, the cancer element of it, uh, I think I was disturbed that it was cancer. Uh, I'm not quite sure why that disturbed me that it was cancer. I think I would have preferred that there was some other thing happening here that was liberating Dr. Winters in some way. But in the end, I, I actually think it worked. Well, I appreciate that uh, explanation, and it, it certainly got me thinking about um, a way to contrast kind of the everymanness, the conflicted morality of uh, of Doctor Winters with the alien, and and we'll be going into the alien now, and hopefully be able to uh, contrast some of their motivations. I I have to say, I think with this alien. Shay has pulled off something really remarkable. We're not dealing with some kind of, you know, ignorant animal who has some level of empirical reasoning and doesn't know that it's not supposed to possess and eat people. You know, it's made like in, you know, Mars attacks where the humans think the aliens are just ignorant and they've made some kind of mistake. No, this alien is a true blue weird fiction monster here who relishes in its evil i mean if 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 lovecraft could have come up with a cosmic horror monster as uh as as terrifying as this alien i think he would have I don't know. Maybe he would have he would have been able to eat out or something like that uh, <laughs> for a night on uh, dying on the on the fruits of this story on the on the money he made selling it. But I, I've weird, emphasized this weird fiction bit a lot in this story, and so to support that claim, to ensure that everyone knows that uh, this this story is deeply steeped in some weird fiction traditions and cosmic horror traditions, I'm going to read a passage that demonstrates you know what I mean. This is from near the end of the story, uh, and this is this is the doctor kind of getting a sense of what this alien is like. And the doctor had glimpses of the history behind this predation, that of a race so far advanced in the essentializing, the inexorable abstraction of their own mental fabric, that through scientific commitment and genetic self-cultivation and genetic self-cultivation. They had come to embody their own model of perfected consciousness, streamlined to permit the entry of other beings and the direct acquisition of their experiential worlds. All strict to scholarship at first, until there matured in the disembodied scholars their long germinal and now blazing jealous hatred for all, quote, lesser minds, rooted and clothed in the soil and sunlight of solid, particular worlds. The parasite spoke of the, quote, cerebral music, the, quote, symphonies of agonized paradox that were its invasion's chief plunder. The doctor felt the truth behind this grandiloquence, its actual harvest, its actual harvest from the systemic violation of encoffined personalities was the experience of a barren supremacy of means over lives more primitive, perhaps but vastly wealthier in the vividness and passionate concern with which life for them was imbued. Uh, first of all, the prose here is astonishingly good, but on the content level, what we have here is your classic cosmic horror, weird fiction, substance dualism, a mind-body Cartesian split, where in this story, perhaps to strive to be a pure mind is the same as striving to be evil. And so I wonder, Glenn, then what you made of Shay's move here within the world of the weird to address the Cartesian split in this way that comes up in almost every weird fiction story we cover. 
Well, this is classic brain in a jar science fiction type of thinking <laughs> as well, right? Where there's this idea in 20th century, mid 20th century science fiction that uh, we're all trying to evolve to a point where we are just brains in a jar or uh, ethereal light beings or something like that, right? This idea that we're all going to leave our bodies behind uh, because our bodies are really just meat sacks for ourselves, right? This is a big part of uh, mid-20th century science fiction. I mean, it's all over Star Trek, the original series, just as an example. But here we're getting it not in this positive idea, right? This idea that someday we're going to shed our bodies and live forever in some, uh, you know, a heavenly way, some enlightened way where we are just just minds, just enlightened minds. Here, Shay is showing us a species that has evolved beyond the need for its own meat sacks, a highly intelligent and educated and sophisticated species that can make spaceships. And um, the way that they've left their meat sacks behind is actually just to take other people's meat sacks, use those meat sacks then to eat other meat sacks. And um, it's not cool. It's it's really not cool. Uh, it's an absolutely terrifying vision. And so, you know, I, I think that Shay is doing something here with this idea of, you know, the mind-body split here. There's, you know, this dualism, as you've, you've put it, Brandon. But I think also he is playing, again, with this trope of speculative fiction. I guess this is one of the tropes maybe we should have brought up in the the first part of the conversation, because that's really where I see him, you know, making use of this, is that this is really about um, the question of whether or not our bodies are meat sacks. Exactly. Yeah. This is a classic kind of weird fiction sort of thing. I mean... um yeah, this this idea of the the realm of the mind being kind of if we could open our minds enough and see what the universe truly was, we'd be horrified. And this is kind of all cosmic horror e. And instead, what Shay is doing here in my mind is saying, okay, let's say we become pure minds and we have perfect, a wide open minds. Um, what would stop us from justifying any action we take to perpetuate ourselves? And that, that's what I want to look at next. And, and maybe this will help us contrast the doctor's motivations with the aliens. Uh, and maybe I'll get to this in a roundabout way. You know, one of the many tragedies of the story is that this Eddie Sykes, Joe Allen character was, by the aliens' own account, a kind of beautiful soul, right? He was translating Marcus Aurelius on his own time. He was just kind of this really kind, educated, thoughtful man who worked in the mines. And the alien relished in Eddie Sykes' destruction. This is what the alien says about what it likes to do and what it really feeds upon. It said this, My truest feast lies in compelling you to feed in that way, like on bodies, and in the utter deformation and in the utter deformation of your will this will involve. Had gross nourishment been my prime need, then my grave mates, Pollock and Jackson, could have eked out two weeks of life for me or more. But I scorned a cowardly parsimony in the face of death. I reinvested more than half the energy that their blood gave me in fabricating chemicals to keep their brains alive and fluid bathed with oxygenated nutriment. 
So, so this tells us that this alien is completely deranged and raises the question of what sort of creature, other than you know the demonic, which is suggested to us as a metaphor in the story, what sort of creature would sacrifice the potential to go on surviving, living a life it enjoys, just to psychologically torture some dead and dying men in a cave? And so... I guess there's two things I want to do, just to contrast the willingness of both of these types of creatures, uh, the human, Dr. Winters and the alien, to to die, to even sacrifice themselves in order to do some good, as, as Dr. Winters gets pleasure from doing good and dies with a smile on his face in the same way that the alien takes pleasure from torturing uh, humans. So we can contrast that here, but then also look at the way this story might function as a possession story. We've done this a little bit, but, um, you know, to look at how Shay's using this possession trope as a motivation for the alien character to, to further the story. I had the impression as well, Brandon, that the alien here also has violated orders or at least violated protocol here so that we're seeing an alien who are an individual, maybe I should say, who is perhaps something of an outlier in his own species or or maybe not. Maybe actually that's why there are these protocols because people, uh, these aliens have the impulse to want to not follow them. And what I'm getting at here is that I had the sense that the alien was also meant to die in that explosion. It wasn't just you've got to blow up the spaceship in order to avoid detection, but that also you need to blow yourself up to avoid detection because uh, if you're found out, you're going to ruin this uh, this for the rest of us. We can't let the cattle find out that we exist, but that he wanted to live. He didn't want to die. And so he did it this way, right? He blew up, he, he intentionally tried to save himself, which he was not supposed to do. And so I think we are seeing in many ways, right, this individual here, this alien individual uh, presented as extraordinarily selfish in addition to being extraordinarily vicious in ways that Dr. Winters is, is behaving in a selfless way and also behaving in a way that is, is, is kind and caring, right? That he is motivated by the envisioned potential suffering of these families whose breadwinner has just died in this horrible accident, right? So we get empathy and compassion and, and selflessness from Dr. Winters, and then we get all the opposite of that in the alien, as you're suggesting. And it's a, it's a fantastic uh, contrast. It really is, and it's a perfect contrast to set up this imagery of the demonic here, right? Which is kind of every uh, perverted desire of like what it means to belong. This alien is even willing to risk expo- exposing its own kind in order to relish the destruction and deformation of will, of the will of other people, to, to enjoy the torment of them f- knowing they're feasting upon another human being. And it's it's just so brilliant. I mean, the, the demonic is handled with a really light touch in the story, but the idea of the possession to turn people evil is kind of a, a core concept in the background of the story. And Shay, again, has blended the idea of cosmic horror of cosmic beings who view us as nothing more than cattle, that the life is meaningless and that people have figured out meeting and the ones that have in the universe view us as 
food um, and blended that with kind of the Western concept of the demonic that will pervert our will and cause us to do evil. It's uh, it's just really astonishing. I mean, my breath is kind of taken away, but now we've come, I think, to the real crux of the episode. Now that we've kind of explored so much of what Shay has done beautifully and masterfully in this story, how was this adapted, Glenn? Did the adaptation even touch the complexity of Shay's vision for this story? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this adaptation, but I'm going to I'm going to hold off on that for just one second, Brandon, because I want to go back to this detail that you mentioned about Sykes as uh, being someone who was translating the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, uh, Roman emperor, so translating them from Latin to English. When I read that, in part because in fact almost well completely because I was envisioning this being set in Appalachia, the coal mine country. I thought that Shea was making a bit of a joke here. I thought maybe that Eddie Sykes here was meant to be David Drake, who we, of course, have covered here on Elder Sign as well as on Atos, who lives in North Carolina and has translated not uh, Marcus Aurelius, at least not as far as I know, but has done his own translations of Ovid, the Latin poet Ovid, and was you know active in this type of writing scene at the time, at the same time as Michael Shea. But I couldn't find any information about Michael Shea and David Drake being friends. But I, I had a sense that that's what was going on here, that this was one writer putting another writer friend as a character in this story. And in fact, having him be the first victim of this, uh, this body snatcher, uh, just a hypothesis for our listeners. They probably spent a lot of time at the bar cons, you know, the con at the bar, whatever they were at, uh, at any of the conventions <laughs> they went to and maybe got to know each other that way. That's hilarious. That didn't even uh, occur to me. But Glenn, you, you, you know, you have to tell me about this show. Right. So as you said at the top of the show, Brandon, this story has been recently adapted for television here. It's a show that appeared on Netflix. It's Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, which is a horror anthology show. So it's uh, eight episodes, but each one is, you know, a different cast, different director, different composer. I should say that two episodes are adaptations of Lovecraft stories. That's uh, Pickman's Model and Dreams in the Witch House, which are both spectacular stories. I did not watch any of this show except for the autopsy adaptation. Um, I'm probably not going to unless we are covering <laughs> you know, other stories that these are, are based on. Uh, let me give the episode credits as well before I start talking about its success as an adaptation, uh, which is just to say that the episode was directed by David Pryor from a teleplay by David S. Goyer. And then the cast, um, the cast is actually great. Acting is all phenomenal. But in particular, I think what really matters here is that uh, Dr. Winters is played by F. Murray Abraham, who is, uh, you know, Salieri in Amadeus, <laughs> right. uh, also the villain in Star Trek Insurrection. And uh, so it was phenomenal to, to see him in this role. And he definitely nailed it. But I think my general assessment of this adaptation, Brandon, before I drill into some of the particulars, my general assessment is it was fine. It was fine. Yeah. It, it, it was nowhere near as good as the story. It didn't do really any of the things that you and I have talked about here. And in fact, uh, willfully ignored or downplayed many of them. That was a, a big disappointment to me. But I will say it did make some choices that I did like. Um, for one, it spent more time on the mystery Element. It does actually show us the sheriff's, you know, backstory here as a flashback. It's not just 
character dialogue gives us that as a flashback and and devotes more time to that. That's really only about uh, maybe a quarter or a third of this story, uh, whereas in the screen adaptation, the Netflix version, it's actually really about half of the screen time. On the other hand, it totally downplays the class politics, the class struggle here. That's there in the dialogue at the beginning, but it's not really a part of the story. We don't actually ever get Dr. Winters making any decisions about that. Uh, A lot of the sheriff's um, angst, or really just downright anger about that situation is way downplayed. Uh, It's really written as like bemusement rather than anger. And so that, what I, and so that really central element of the story, central theme of the story is just gone from this adaptation as well. And I will say that for me, that was probably actually my biggest disappointment with the the show. Um, it also makes some changes to the alien itself. I mean, one, it has to make, right? It has to make the alien <laughs> much larger so that, you know, it can show up on camera. And so it's got like tentacles. And, you know, the whole idea, of course, right, is that the alien really is not a meat sack anymore. It's just something that can exist as a mind and needs to inhabit an actual meat sack. But, you know, this makes the alien actually have tentacles and be a physical threat even when it's outside of the body. Um, And that works when you're watching it and, you know, to make you afraid to play up the horror element in this visual medium. But it, you know, I think, again, undermines what Shay has done here. Uh, Also, they gave the alien this like hypnotic superpower of suggestion in order to lure victims where for Shay, the aliens are actually just really great at pretending to be humans. They might even be better at pretending to be humans than, than many of us are at actually being humans and being, you know, con artists essentially to lure victims. Uh, but that, you know, let the show do a kind of weird voice effect and zoom in on people's mouths and, and that sort of thing. So, <laughs> I, you know, it's fine. It's an adaptation. They're going to do different things. Yeah, I mean that's that's just really fascinating. I think I think so much of, you know, what makes good horror is is the suggestion of this sort of stuff that seems to be pretty explicit. Uh, you know, I I don't think I'd want to see. I think the horror, a lot of the horror of the story is that the monster is kind of small and needs to like. There's a a, a, a true relationship with a parasite and host here that the the monster relies upon people in some way. And so that, that kind of final act of the performing the autopsy on itself to translate, to trans, to transfer into the new body, all of this kind of plays up the horror of this small thing that can kind of like, that can kind of rule over us in ways that we don't even know and control us in ways to, to, to turn it into a voice effect. I don't know. I'm skeptical, Glenn. I'm skeptical. Yeah, well, and you you should be. It was it was a fine adaptation. It was an, an enjoyable bit of television. I think if I had just watched it on its own without knowing the story, I'm certain that I would have liked it a lot more than I did. And it does do some great things. I mean, it retains a lot of the dialogue and the narrative voice. Uh, one gimmick, one device that the adaptation uses is to introduce a tape recorder during the autopsy so that we can have Winters talking to himself so that we can stay in his in his head. And I'm really glad that they did, that there is a lot of that that narrative voice then that's retained here. The show builds a fantastic atmosphere. Uh, the warehouse set that they used for the autopsy was perfect a lot of the the camera work and a lot of the 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 noise you know the the sound design was 
awesome to build this really marvelous atmosphere. So all of that was great. I mean, you know, if you're going to horror TV or horror film for that sort of thing, for mood and atmosphere, this definitely has it. Uh, But for me, I think the weakest part of this adaptation is the thing that certainly I expected going in and also forgot to warn Elizabeth about until it was probably too late, which is that um, it's body horror. Uh, So this was way (laughs) too gory for me. Um, And uh, I just didn't watch a lot of it. I mean, I was there for it. I was hearing it, but I just, I just had my eyes covered for, I don't know, probably a solid five minutes of the final act of this. I think Elizabeth did as well. It was just way, way, way too gory. Really, really dialed that up. And in fact, I think maybe my my summary of this, Brandon, would be to say that the episode really minimized the two things that are my draw to the story. One is the class struggle politics, uh, you know, the hard-boiled politics around class struggle and economic justice in this mining town minimizes that almost out of existence, but then also really minimized the cosmic horror bit at the end. I mean, it's all there, but not that much is made out of it, that really what's emphasized here is the serial killer body horror. And so I think this is really then germane to the conversation that we had at the top of this episode, Brandon, which is to talk about the different genres that this story is, because what this then did for the adaptation or, you know, the screenwriter who's needing to make this adaptation is that the screenwriter can really only pick one of those to work with and went with the serial killer body horror stuff, as opposed to the things that you and I like. But, yeah. you know, there are people who like serial killer body horror stuff more than they like the stuff we like. So that worked for some people, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fascinating. I would think it would almost have to take that route for television to get made, you know? People are not going to go in for a uh, five-minute villain monologue while you know, the villain is dismembering themselves, a dead man <laughs> carving himself up with a knife, uh, talking in an eloquent tone about how humans are cattle and <laughs> they like to eat them and torture them and stuff. I think, um, you know, I, I think to emphasize that kind of, even though it's gruesome and deep in the body, that that kind of mind-body split, um, I mean, it's something that's really overlooked in weird fiction in general. I, I don't know how many other... Uh, weird fiction people out there. Like I've read lots of essays about weird fiction. I've read all sorts of stuff. Um, everybody seems to follow, you know, Lovecraft's tack on uh, fear of the unknown instead of realizing that so much of what makes up weird fiction tension and horror is twofold. I mean, it's cosmic horror. Humans are less than we think we are. But then also that um, this kind of mind-body split has really done us dirty in terms of philosophical thinking and approaching the world. And and I just see so little of that out there. And it would be hard to adapt, I think, for television, um, for something that's a serial killer story to turn it into a philosophical treatise on um, you know Descartes' mistakes would be, I don't know, maybe not make for great TV for most people. It would be something I'd love to watch, though. Yeah. And all of that stuff is still in the episode. Let me be clear about that. And in fact, in some ways, the episode is almost too faithful to the the plot beats of the story. And so it doesn't make for great television or great visual media to just have this very long bit of expositional conversation with two bodies on gurneys in the middle of this very bizarre <laughs> transplant. That is actually how it is shot. And so what's missing, though, is any sense of stakes about what the alien is 
is saying. Um, F. Murray Abraham gets to actually deliver some scathing rebukes to the point of view, the philosophy of the alien. Uh, in fact, gets to offer some pretty scathing rebukes about this idea that because they have shed their meat sacks, they are superior. All of that stuff is there. It's just much, much smaller. It's a much smaller percentage of the story because they've spent actually a lot of time showing us the body horror stuff that is the visual stuff, right? The visual elements of the story that are going to work well for translating to screen. And so, I don't know, there might have been a way that they could have actually done some, you know, flashbacks or something like that to give us a bigger sense of the the cosmic horror here. But that's not where they went. It, it still was a fun episode, though, I will, I will say. So I do recommend people, you know, checking it out. I mean, it's a, you know, an hour of your of your time. And there was one other element of this episode that I think is worth mentioning, which is the music, which was composed by Christopher Young, who's pretty famous in horror movie scenes. He scored the Hellraiser series, also loads of other horror and thriller movies. Uh, he also scored the Shipping News, which actually I think is a really brilliant score. It's actually my favorite <laughs> score of his. I don't actually otherwise all that often like Christopher Young's music, I will say. But the music he did for this was awesome. I mean, it was really great. He uses something that sounds like it's an out-of-tune banjo, and just that's kind of most of the soundscape, actually, is just this banjo, out-of-tune banjo plucking, and it creates a really eerie mood for the setting, and, you know, really emphasizes the fact that here we are in Appalachia as well, and that's in use throughout the whole episode until, really, we get to the end, uh, where then that disappears and Young instead uses a lot of, you know, drone sounds that we get in horror movies now, which I was, you know, less compelled by that. I will say the soundtrack for this season is available. I think you can just, you know, find it on YouTube in addition to streaming services and so on. Uh, only has three tracks from this episode because it's, you know, a soundtrack for the entire season, all eight episodes of the show. Uh, sadly, only one of them is this good stuff that I just described. The other two tracks <laughs> are that dumb drone sound at the end, uh, or at least, you know, that's me putting my cards on the table there. But I will say that was a masterful part of the the storytelling. That's really great. Yeah, it's always great when uh, when the music can really uh, set the mood and also reinforce the setting and the, at the same time keep the tension high. Uh, that sounds pretty cool. I will have to check that out. I don't know if I'm going to watch this episode. I guess I one thing you could do, I guess, to to emphasize the philosophical stuff is to put uh, on the on the flash card on the beginning of the screen something like everybody knows Descartes said I think therefore I am <laughs> and then just go from there I don't know maybe with an ellipsis after that anyway I think we've covered this story pretty pretty good we've looked at the adaptation uh, we've talked a lot about how the genres function and that that is actually really crucial I think the crucial takeaway for me for this story and so yeah that's going to do it for this episode once again I'm Brandon Buddha and I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Next time, we're going to be back with a commissioned episode, an extra episode that was funded by one of you, one of our really awesome listeners. This is a great story by Stephen Graham Jones called How to Break into a Hotel Room. And then after that, we will be back with our regularly scheduled episode on William Hope Hodgson's story, The Thing Invisible. This is a Karnacki story, the next installment in our ongoing occult detective series. But until next time, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>